You know, one of the things that jumps to mind is this sense that so many of us want to wait until we figure out what we're passionate about. Or if we're somewhat passionate, we want our passion to grow and kind of roll over into a boil before we take any action. And so we spend so much time consuming information about all of these different issues, consuming information about the challenges of the world, and we're just in this holding pattern. Like we see other people doing things, and we think, oh, like they, they're meant to go do that. They're passionate about that. That's their calling. That's what they're supposed to do. Hopefully I'll get one of, uh, one of those calling type things one day. And we're all in a position of just waiting. And I think that is completely opposite of how most of the people I've met who are doing something significant started. And that is that passion often follows action. It doesn't precede it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to chapter 30 of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. What a week. I'm so excited you're here. I am thrilled and excited and so much more because this past weekend, I gave my very first TEDx talk at TEDx Grant Park in Chicago. My talk was called The Power of Less. It was an amazing experience. I spoke alongside some incredible people. I can't wait to share my talk and the other talks with you. Make sure you follow me on social media so you can see those talks when I share them. It was an amazing experience. I'm going to record a video soon that I'll share online about the whole experience because it wasn't all positive and hunky-dory. There were some tough moments, which I had some strange things happen to me uh, in my mind and in my heart and in my life, which I wasn't used to because I am a pretty natural communicator and I love talking with people and I love being in front of people. And some really weird things happened and I learned a lot about myself. My wife was very supportive. My brother who was with me was very supportive. And um, yeah, made it through the event. Uh, it was a, an impactful talk, according to many people. I spent almost two hours talking with people after the event was over about the talk and about some of the things I was discussing and learning and experimenting with that I uh, talked about in the talk. So anyway, I'm excited to share that with you soon, but it was just a thrilling, it's been a thrilling week in every way, shape, and form. Can't wait to share more with you soon. Let's talk about our guest for one second. John Cotton Richmond is an amazing man, an amazing individual with a pretty incredible story, and he does some really incredibly profound and life-changing work, and you're going to hear that in this talk. He is the founding director of the Human Trafficking Institute. They exist to decimate modern slavery at its source by empowering police and prosecutors to stop traffickers. Before founding the Human Trafficking Institute, he was a federal prosecutor serving as the Special Litigation Counsel with the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. He investigated and prosecuted many victim-centered labor and sex trafficking cases throughout the U.S., and he also prosecuted cross-burnings, police misconduct, and neo-Nazi hate crimes. And before that, he began his career, well, I don't know if he began his career, but began the trajectory of his life that he's in now, serving as International Justice Missions Director over slavery work in India, that is freeing people from slavery. So his career has been, has impacted so many lives. This was such a fun talk because I admire him in so many ways. He shared so many incredible things that touched me and I know will impact you. So without further ado, I'm going to stop talking 
and share with you right now my conversation with John Cotton Richmond. So my name is Nick, I'm your host, and here's our conversation. Let's go. John Richmond, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, speaking to the Let's Give a Damn family. Hope you're well. Thanks for joining me, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited about the work that you're doing, about your life, and I don't even know that much about your life, so I'm, I'm going to be more excited at the end of this conversation, I assume. Let's get right into it. I have so much that I want to talk to you about, and we have just a few minutes to do it in. Let's start, before we give people an insight into the work that you do and the gravity of it, let's go back to as far back as you want to go into your early years, your younger years. Tell me anything, whether it's people, experiences, relationships, things that happened. Give me insight into anything that I should know, that we should know, that'll help us know more about your story and more about the things that shaped you to be the person you are today that we're talking to? Mm. You know, there are, are so many things, but one is that I grew up with a mom and a dad that really successfully communicated to me deep in my heart that I was loved and that they cared about me. And that provided an amazing platform um, to begin to engage the things I saw. And I remember as a kid, my older brother and I playing these epic games um, as, we, as we ran through fields and explored and tried to, to defeat dragons and, and fight injustices and try and rescue individuals that we had just made up. And watching my mom and dad as they discussed issues from their experience in the civil rights movement or as they ex- were processing things for us that were being broadcast on the nightly news, we had this clear sense of there are, there are things in the world that are wrong and there are things in the world that are right, and we should have a voice as we engage those. And so when I was a kid, it was, it was little things. It could have been the imaginary games or it could have been the issues at school but as I grew up um, and was fortunate enough to get to go to college and um, then law school began to take those same ideas as I matured a little bit and gained a better sense of nuance and understanding about the world in which I live, had the opportunity to begin to, to think, could we actually address these concerns and these problems that exist around us? Now, at any point in that story, did you have a, so obviously this podcast is talking with people who give a damn and you very much do. Did you have a pivotal moment where you began to give a damn or was it more of a gradual process because of your parents always telling you and showing you that you were loved? Or was there something that happened that like really kind of the proverbial punch in the gut that really changed the way you think about people and, and, and things in life. You know, I think that if, if you were to interview my friends from middle school, they would tell you what I cared most about was me and they would be right. You know, I think that as, as we kind of moved on through high school, I began to get a better window into the world. And there wasn't sort of one definitive moment where I understood and began to care about people. I feel like it, it matured over time. But there were absolute pivotal moments where there was a choice about whether I was going to take action and do something or whether I was going to stay with the status quo and kind of sink into perceived security and safety and not take a risk. And it's the pivotal moments 
that weren't so much about deciding to care. It was deciding to move beyond just caring. Because I think the people who are struggling around the world are not in desperate need of more people with good intentions. They're in desperate need of people who are going to take action to go solve problems. Yeah, no, that's huge. When I asked you the first question, you mentioned that there are so many good things and so many bad things in the world, and we get to raise our voice, right? So talk for a minute about, again, this is before we get to the core of the work that you're doing. Talk for a minute about just current affairs, like everything that's going on right now. You know, we've got just most recently Charlottesville and then the protests that continued after that in Boston and other places. And Boston was much more peaceful, obviously, but there's just so much turmoil. I am not a great, I try, I try, God knows I try to use my social media platform wisely. But sometimes I just, I mean, I spend most days in the last week and a half, two weeks with just this sick to my stomach feeling just about how things are um, in society and politics, so on and so forth. So talk for a minute about your view on all of this and then how can we like responsibly approach these current affairs that are happening? You know, I think this is a real struggle and it's something that, that I wrestle with as well. If I consume too much news and media from, from any of the sources that are out there, it gives me a sense of anxiety. It, it makes me feel like everything is about to fall apart. And I just want to pull back from that for a minute. And I know that there are real issues out there and there are wrongs that need to be righted and we get to speak into those. But I think that most people um, are in a place where they're not at odds with one another. I think there, there's a large amount of agreement in the world amongst lots of folks that, that right is right and wrong is wrong. And we have come to a place where we no longer deny people's civil rights. We no longer prevent women from voting or owning property. Like we've moved beyond tons of these things and we have a long way to go. But I, I'd like to think that the that the pieces that we're seeing on TV and on the nightly news are are the extreme aspects, um, and they need to be addressed really clearly. But I think there's a foundation of of justice in our culture, and I think that needs to be emphasized. That is, there are plenty of gaps, there are plenty of problems, and they need to be spoken to clearly and boldly. But I don't want to do that at the exclusion of not addressing the fact that there are so many good cultural assets. There is so much good news. There are so many times where we see people reaching across boundaries, whether it be race or faith or ethnicity or anything else, and doing the right thing and caring for one another. And I think those, those pieces don't get on the news. Those pieces don't get a megaphone to be broadcast. And there are reasons for that. But I think sometimes when we look at um, – the challenges that we're seeing around the country and indeed around the world, it's helpful to remember that there is a great foundation of justice as well. Mm. That's helpful. And <laughs> I need to somehow, honey, I shrunk the kids you and put, put you in my pocket and carry you around with me because I need that perspective constantly in my ear because I tend to focus on, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard for me. I'm not saying uh, you know, you're better than me or I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking to that. It's just really hard for me. And I need maybe to mature more in that area or, um, 
maybe I need a better influx of information. You know, you probably, like you, you mentioned, like I can't watch these things and I don't obviously watch the news. Nobody watches the news anymore, but we get it through social media. And there's just so much just political stuff with our, you know, our president and Charlottesville. And yeah, it's been really hard, but you're right. As I walk out the door of this studio that I'm in right now, I'm going to by and large see a bunch of people that if I got hit by a car or if something happened, they would run over and do everything possible to help me. And we're seeing that in Houston right now and in Galveston and these places where these tragedies are happening and people are pitching in. Sometimes they're dying because of it because they're given their given their all so much. They're putting themselves into dangerous situations for the good of other people. So you're completely right. I love I love that outlook. I think we should just find the people that are speaking in that way. Find those examples and just cheerlead them and follow them and encourage them. Because I think as we gravitate towards good, um, it doesn't deny that there's the bad happening. It just gives us the power and the emotional support to deal with those bad things. But if we feel like all is lost, there is no hope, everything's falling apart. Sure. then it's really hard to motivate yeah. and to get involved yeah. because it just feels so overwhelming. Yeah, very true. And you and I both know Brandon Harvey, mm. who, I, who I think does this so well, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. With, with, his, with his Sounds Good podcast. If you're listening, go listen to that podcast and the whole good, good, good platform that he's building. I, I love that. Um, and I think there's a place for what I'm doing and a place for what he's doing and a place for what all of us are doing for sure. But please go because he is an example of that. And you obviously are too. Okay, so let's let's move on to... Uh, the Human Trafficking Institute. You are a founding partner there. Please tell us everything about that from the genesis of the Human Trafficking Institute and what has happened since then and what what all takes place. Yeah, you know, I think this is actually a great sort of segue from your earlier questions because I think when people hear about human trafficking, they often feel somewhat hopeless. That is, they hear about the fact that there are more slaves in the world today than ever before in human history. They hear that there were more slaves that exist now than were trafficked during all 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. And it just feels overwhelming. And we, we learned that it's such a it's a powerful economic crime that the revenues from trafficking are estimated by the U.N. to exceed 150 billion with a B billion dollars a year. And it's just so large. And there's so many people suffering around the world. Um, that we can often hear these stories and we just get, in a sense, awareness fatigue. Um, I talked to one guy who said, John, please don't tell me another story about a 13-year-old girl in an Asian brothel. And what he was saying was that it's not that he's not aware. It's not that he doesn't even care. It's that he's tired of being confronted with these great evils and great challenges and then not knowing where to go with that. Like, how do I even begin to address it? And I think there's a lot of folks who might feel that way. They've gone beyond sort of wearing the right colored ribbon on the designated awareness day. Um, they want to actually sort of figure out how do we address this? Is there any hope? And I think the encouraging thing that I've seen in the last 15 years of working on human trafficking issues is that there are so many reasons to hope. We're in a great place within the sort of the historical framework for this and a great place in terms of the world's ability to address it. And so when I started, I um, was in law practice in Virginia. I was working with a law firm doing commercial litigation with some wonderful people. And my wife and I um, began to understand and learn about slavery around the world. 
And we had a 15-month-old, our, our daughter, um, when we decided to move to India and begin work with the International Justice Mission and help pioneer their forced labor work and slavery work in India. In fact, when we left, um, my wife was eight months pregnant. Um, and so like, we were committed. We both felt compelled to go to India when we did. And when we went, Nick, I will tell you, I had never met a slave. You know, I grew up in Virginia. I'm a white guy from the South. My name is John Cotton Richmond. I mean, when people <laughs> see me, that last thing they're thinking about is abolition. And right. we get there, and um, I began to meet slaves. I began to meet victims, real human beings with stories and with families just like mine, and began to connect with them and learn about their life and how things have happened for them. But I also began to meet traffickers and hear their stories and see where they were coming from and realize this thing that we're seeing around the world, this slavery that is exploding in so many developing countries is really, really wrong. It's wrong at its core. And I think what's hard to, to keep in mind is that for most of human history, slavery has been legal. It's been democratically approved. It was enshrined in our own U.S. Constitution. And it wasn't until about 250 years ago that we began to see systems say slavery is wrong. So if you go back in history from the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Greeks and the Romans and all, all throughout every continent, there was some sort of human trafficking or slavery. And then 250 years ago, we began to see countries say, no, it's illegal. And now every country in the world has some sort of law against human trafficking, which is a massive seismic shift from a historical perspective. And now the question is, how do we get those laws, those, those protections written on parchment, all the way down, delivered to the people that they were meant to protect? And as I began to meet those folks in India, we lived over there for a little over three years and began to do cases, um, build a team and build a model for a replicable um, pattern of rescue and working with the court system and doing it in a way that honored victims throughout the process. Came back to the United States and became a federal prosecutor with the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit um, in Washington, D.C. And I got to try forced labor and sex trafficking cases across this country and in courthouses and in all sorts of cities and began to learn more and more um, began to meet more and more victims and began to meet more and more traffickers. And through all of this, we began to see seeds of hope that there are really things we can do to stop traffickers from harming others. And through that, I also got to work with the United Nations on the International Human Trafficking Protocol and began to travel to countries around the world and train their law enforcement officers and police on how to best stop traffickers from harming victims. And so it was from all these experiences that we began to see patterns that is proven strategies that make a difference. And about a year and a half ago, I stepped down from the Department of Justice, kind of another big risk for our family, and started the Human Trafficking Institute, where we're intentionally working with countries around the world on how they can improve their criminal justice response to stopping traffickers and decimate um, trafficking in their countries. Wow, this <laughs> you've done quite a bit in this arena. I mean, on the one hand, very impressive, and on the other hand, just like I'm so grateful for 
the work that you've done for the past 15 years, right? You said 15 years since you went to India? Yep. Yeah, it's incredible. So a year and a half ago, Human Trafficking Institute. Okay, so you said it was a leap. How's that leap working out? I know taking such leaps with real people, right? Like my wife and three children. I'm currently in the middle of about five leaps. And so I get it. So how has that worked out? What's going on? Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. You know, every time we have made a turn and gone for something and taken a bit of a risk, we have been overwhelmed by not only how much joy it's brought, but also how invigorating it is. Um, So we, we set out and I got to do it with a good friend of mine, Victor Boutros, who was a prosecutor with me at the Department of Justice and who co-wrote The Locust Effect with Gary Haugen. Um, Super smart guy. And he and I are friends. We've been doing this in community together. The head of the FBI's um, uh, human trafficking unit um, retired and joined us. And so now we have um, an amazing career law enforcement officer who not only has done trafficking cases, but was one of the lead instructors at the FBI Academy in Quantico. And we're just building a team of folks and want to take the, these proven strategies that we've seen work in the United States and in Europe and around the world and think, how do we actually make this happen? How do we actually create a difference? Because what we're not trying to do is just collect more information about trafficking. We're not just trying to let everyone know about what's happening. We want something to change for the people who are on the ground being affected by this. Yeah, that's super helpful. So let's take a different approach here. Um, A lot of the people I talk with when it comes to giving a damn and taking risks and doing, yeah, risky things, a lot of times I hear, but my wife or but my husband or but my parents, you know, because it's hard to, you know, sometimes cast a vision to our loved ones and say, "This this is going to be hard and amazing and so worth it. Come along with me. And then, you know, to get them to like jump in hoorah at that. So what have you done for those relationships closest to you to like bring them along, to cast a vision to them, to like, and make sure they're taken care of in the process and still with you to this day? You know, I think one of the things is that I've tried not to frame it as I've got a big vision and I want everyone to follow. That's definitely a way to, to lead, but I'd rather pursue conversations that influence and welcome the idea that they influence me as well. And so you know, as we began to think about slavery around the world, my wife and I entered into those conversations together as partners trying to figure out, like, how how could we respond to this? What could we bring to the table? Not sort of, I'm a lawyer, I'm going to go do this, I'd like you to come follow me. But how could the two of us go together? And I think that approach has been really, really helpful and is validated when I really listen to her. Um, and I do when she has um, ideas and thoughts or just intuition about how to approach things. I take her ideas really seriously. And when she's had caution and said, I think we need to shift or stop something, even if it wasn't what I wanted to do, to begin to, to hear that with ears that um, will take seriously and listen to that perspective. And so I, I tried to engage in conversations but we've also made sacrifices, Nick. You know, if we had stayed at a law firm and we would be living in a much differently sized house right now, you know, there are choices and there are consequences to those choices. Um, and sometimes those consequences are hard. You know, sometimes when when you move a couple times or you're not living in a place where you've developed roots or you wish that things were a little bit different or you catch the eye of those who used to be your peers, whom in some ways are now lapping you 
in um, areas of success or areas of wealth or money, you, you can fall into that painful trap of comparison. And in those moments, we've had these great conversations of, man, it's hard, but we would not make our choices differently. We're really happy with the choices we've made and the people we're investing in. And most of all, we want to demonstrate to our kids that you take risks, that you go for something. The last thing we want are to have sweet, nice kids that just sort of drift along in life and then retire well. Like we want kids that are going to be animated, kids that are going to have passion, that they're going to have a demonstrated model that when you see something, you can go for it and you might fail and it might hurt. And we'll be together to figure those things out and deal with them together and then we'll go for it again. Um, because that's where the joys of life are. That's where the stories that people retell at Thanksgiving or retell when they're older all come from. They come from those moments when they when they went for it, when they yep. decided that they wanted to actually make a difference and happen to their lives. Yeah, that's so huge. I mean, my kids who are five, four, and three right now are getting a front row seat to that. You know, my wife and I are just trying to thoughtfully and carefully show our kids that kind of life, right? We're not trying to be like too foolish that we're going to end up out on the street, but we are, we are, we are taking risk after risk right now for, you know, the good of our family and for, you know, for our future, which is hopefully going to help so many people. And so I love hearing that story. I love how you're, you know, yeah. Shepherding your family that way. That's, that's really awesome. Let's go back to your work real quickly uh, at the human trafficking Institute. Can you help the let's give a damn listeners? Let's give a damn family. Give us a picture of what, trafficking looks like today? Because I think for a lot of people, unless they're super into this conversation and helping and serving and donating and whatnot, they might think that it's, uh, you know, yeah, there's some sex stuff involved, but it's mostly like, you know, you know, shipping somebody from here to there so they can work for them and this and that. Can you give us a picture of what what's the breadth and the depth and the width of this right now? Yeah. You know, I would say that human trafficking is massive, that we're talking about over 20 million people by the most conservative estimates that are currently trapped. And it's in the sex industry, but it's also in labor industries. In fact, in fact, we estimate that the vast majority of victims in the world are labor trafficking victims. It's boys. It's not just girls. It's men as well as women. And they all need care and they all have dignity and they all need someone to come help stand up for them where they're at. Sometimes they're moved across borders. Um, sometimes they're moved from country to country. But there are other times when there's no movement involved as, at all, that they stay in the same county or city where they originally were and they're, they're trafficked right there. In some ways, the word trafficking is a misnomer. I wish we had never started using it. But it's stuck because trafficking makes us think of road congestion or it makes us think of moving things like arms trafficking. But trafficking is really about coercion. Uh, human trafficking at its heart is a crime of coercion. That is compelling someone to work or engage in commerce or prostitution when they don't want to. And that is the heart of the crime. And it happens in every industry. Um, it happens in restaurants and hotels. It happens in agricultural fields and massage parlors. Um, it can happen almost anywhere, anywhere where the trafficker decides that they want to make money by exploiting other people and denying their own ability to choose, which leaves us with these millions of people who don't get to make the most basic decisions about their lives. 
Someone else decides when they wake up in the morning, where they work, and even who touches their bodies. And when these traffickers treat them as slaves, we have to make a choice about how we're going to address that. Because the reality is that this is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It may have been lasting throughout history, but this isn't like a weather pattern. This isn't an earthquake. It's not a giant wave that, that crashes in that we can't control, that we can't do anything about. This is a choice that a human being makes at its heart. And so we know how to deal with other areas of crime when people make choices to harm others. And this is no different. This is a crime. It is a choice by a trafficker to make. And we can address that choice. We can address it in the specific instance where traffickers are making it, but we can also make it risky for traffickers. So maybe they choose not to engage in this crime. And I think the fact that it's not a, like a natural disaster means that we're not left just trying to mitigate the consequences of trafficking. We're not left just trying to clean up the mess after the storm a trafficker brings occurs. We can actually stop trafficking at its source by stopping the traffickers who are committing this crime. I want to take a quick break to talk about a few amazing people that sponsor this podcast with monthly financial contributions. Want to know who I'm talking about? It's you. Seriously, many of you support the work we are doing on this podcast by contributing monthly on a platform called Patreon. Some give a dollar a month, some give five, some give 10, and some even give $25 a month. And what is so surprising to me is that the largest chunk of people giving give at the $25 level. I'm not even joking. So if you love these stories, consider helping us. No pressure, really. I will always find a way to produce these podcasts, to pay the people involved in making these podcasts, because I want you to hear them. But if you have a few extra dollars every month and want to help us make more of these, we will not say no. Visit patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn for more info. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash let's give a damn for more info. Now, back to my conversation with John Richmond. On this podcast, I have recorded conversations with people that have no faith in a higher deity, Muslims, Christians, and everybody in between. Does faith play a role for you at all in your life and in your work? It does, and it motivates me. I think that it is my personal faith that has caused me to understand kind of one of the most pivotal uh, aspects of this, and that is that everyone has value, that there is inherent value in each individual, and that's why they should not be enslaved. It's also given me strength in terms of perseverance and hope. It's reminded me of the good. And it, most importantly, I think, Nick, has helped me not take myself too seriously. That is, that if I'm a mist and a vapor and I'm here today and gone tomorrow, these important works of justice will continue long after I'm gone. And my job is to do my part today with what I have in front of me and not to take on the burdens of every single issue or even every single individual, but to fight for what is right with the things right in front of me. And because of, of faith, I'm able to, um, at least I hope I'm able to, keep that perspective. And I think that helps us avoid burnout. It helps us avoid getting a savior complex. It helps us avoid 
quite frankly, just taking ourselves too seriously. Everybody listening to this podcast, hopefully they're here because of that. They want to make a difference. They want to give a damn. They want to, you know, fill in the blank, however you want to call it. They want to um, help people, love people, serve people, fix problems right now, immediately, and in their lifetimes. So based on your experience, your skills, your life, can you give two or three pieces of advice slash wisdom to the Let's Give a Damn family uh, that can encompass not just anybody interested in human trafficking or fixing that or helping uh, be a part of the solution, but just really any any giving a damn situation. Do you have anything that you can share with us that would help someone listening on their commute or whatnot begin today? Like no more excuses, let's go. You know, one of the things that jumps to mind is this sense that so many of us want to wait until we figure out what we're passionate about. Or if we're somewhat passionate, we want our passion to grow and kind of roll over into a boil before we take any action. And so we spend so much time consuming information about all of these different issues, consuming information about the challenges of the world, and we're just in this holding pattern. Like we see other people doing things, we think, oh, like they, they're meant to go do that. They're passionate about that. That's their calling. That's what they're supposed to do. Hopefully I'll get one of, uh, one of those calling type things one day. And we're all in a position of just waiting. And I think that is completely opposite of how most of the people I've met who are doing something significant started. And that is that passion often follows action. It doesn't precede it. That we start, we see something and we go do it. And as we're doing it, we become more passionate. As we're taking action, our strategies become more focused. As we're taking action and moving forward towards something, we develop expertise and we develop experience. And then all of a sudden, 10 or 15 years later, it looks like, oh, like they're super passionate. They're super experienced. Of course they went and did those things. But that's not how the story started. You know, the story normally starts with seeing something and deciding I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go make a difference. And I'm not just going to be the people that constantly measure and think and wonder. I'm going to go do those things as retreat from my actions, but I'm going to be a person of action who's advancing and I'm going to make that happen. And so I think often we put this idea that passion is supposed to precede action when I think it's really supposed to follow it. That's super helpful. Uh, That's a big one. Any others or is that kind of the main one you want to leave people with? I'm fine if that's the one. No, you know, I think that in addition to that, I would encourage people to um, be willing to develop expertise that although passion is important, it's, it's passion plus skill that really makes a difference. And I think that we're sometimes in a culture where if we can just constantly demonstrate that we care, we think that's going to be it. But the victims that I've met don't just need people who are passionate about trafficking or care a lot. They need trauma-informed counselors. They need people who go through the time to get the degree to figure out how to bring expert healing to them. They need folks who are willing to go become FBI agents. They need people who are willing to be forensic accountants. They need skilled doctors. They need talented attorneys. And I think sometimes we want to just ride the wave of passion and not necessarily do the hard work of getting the experience and the credentials that is the action that propels us forward, Um, that it's not a waiting game. Because when we think about a physician um, who's headed to East Africa or West Africa to care for Ebola victims, like we want really, really good doctors. We want people who paid attention in school. We want people who, who did well. And 
I think that we want to become a people that pursue excellence, that we want to be people known for excellence, known for being able to do a good job and to finish the job, to stay until it's completely done. And I think when we when we marry these ideas of passion and skill and we wrap it up with a, a ton of hope, we can have a massive impact on the world. Yeah, so something with that, that's a complete piece of advice there, right? Because you gave the passion side and that you have to get going because sometimes action precedes the passion. And then you said, whoa, well, we also have to get good at what we're passionate about, right? Because if we just have passion, right? So many times we can go out and try to accomplish something, but we end up causing more damage, making more trouble because we recklessly try to fix this issue, right? So that's just a really, really helpful and patience, right? Because to get, to become an expert in something, to gain expertise, to get that degree, or in the case of a doctor or a lawyer, multiple degrees, right? It takes patience, which is a very probably lacking discipline for, it's a discipline that many of the people that are listening probably don't have because of the age group, right? A lot of millennials listen to this podcast and we want things really quickly. We live in a like a very immediate type of age where we can get everything super quickly. Our online downloads and our Netflix and our you know overnight shipping from Amazon. And what you're suggesting is, okay, that's fine, but don't go out there and passionately, aka recklessly sometimes, try to fix these things because it might not always go super well. Gain some expertise, get good at it, and then go out there and do it excellently. And you'll probably save time in the long run. Yeah, and, and I think that there's also just benchmarks in the middle. It's not that we have to have an incredibly long-term perspective. There are all sorts of, of benchmarks or smaller goals that we can achieve. But even if you take it out of the justice idea or the human trafficking idea, and you just think about, like, I want to have a long-term healthy marriage that is a love affair. You know, that's going to – there's going to be lots of short-term goals and different things you can do on a daily basis to, to make that happen. Um, but it's also – a marathon. It's also something that you're aiming for from a long time from now. And so I've only gotten to be married for 24 years, but it's been so good. Our, my ability to understand and love my wife now is so much deeper and richer and interesting than when we first got married. And I'm just hopeful that in the next 24 years, it gets even better. So there are lots of wins along the way, but to have somewhat of a longer term perspective, I think allows you the room and the time to really dig in and to really make a difference. Yeah, that's fantastic. John, what does the future look like for you? Because the problem that you and your team and your family are tackling isn't going away anytime in the near future, unfortunately. So what does the future look like? Like what's the dream with your work and your life and your family and the Human Trafficking Institute? Yeah. Well, we're working right now to partner with several countries around the world to do the simple things we know will make a difference. So we're building specialized units in countries. That is, we're taking folks um, who are police officers who currently have human trafficking as their added task. And no one ever gets to their added task, right? Like my added tasks at home, my added tasks at work are always trumped by my primary tasks and the ones that um, are being demanded where there's a deadline. 
And so what we want to do is free people up and say, the, this group of police officers, their primary task is now human trafficking. They're a specialized unit. And we do this all the time. We do it with homicide units. We do it with vice units. We, do it, we have bankruptcy courts and family law courts. We even make TV shows about specialized units. This is what we know. And so you take those specialized units and then take them through an academy. So instead of three days of training at a hotel conference room, it is a longer-term training process where they really learn how to care for victims, how to interview them, how to put on a trial, how to get a conviction and stop the traffickers. And then find experts who have done these cases before and embed them inside those specialized units where they work day in and day out with the specialized units to stop traffickers. Because we want to build capacity within the criminal justice system in order to actually deliver those protections of law. There's no help if we just run in there like cowboys and pull people out of, out of, out of houses or brothels. What makes a difference is when those traffickers are stopped and the system begins to work and people can count on it and rely on it. And so we're in the process of doing that and we're raising up an army of people that are, are passionate about this, are decided that they want to be interested in it even where they want to gather more information. Um, people have been joining us as justice partners to kind of be a part of our monthly team as we are communicating about how to do this and supporting us financially. Um, we are so thankful for each one of those justice partners as they stand with us. And over the next few years, we are hoping to see measurable changes in the prevalence of human trafficking we are hoping to see a significant increase in the number of traffickers stopped and the number of victims rescued. But most of all, we're hoping that individuals will finally feel like there is something we can do. We don't have to suffer from that awareness fatigue. We can actually take this passion, take this interest, and either join with folks who are trying to do this as a profession or at least support them as they're going forward and doing it. And it has been a great joy to be on this journey with friends, to be on this journey with unbelievably talented and experienced professionals, um, and to be seeing change happen. John, I want to spend 30 seconds as we begin to wrap up just honoring you in your life. Because first of all, I'm very grateful for you. I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing. I'm very grateful for the hard, like just very heavy work that you've engaged in over the long term. I'm very grateful that you have spent 15 years preparing for the tasks that you're doing today. So please feel honored, feel encouraged, keep going. We're with you as the Let's Give a Damn family. I hope that people will listen to this and go check out what you're doing, support what you all are doing. But yeah, I'm just really grateful for you. And, and I'm excited to, in some way, shape or form, help out and then also continue to see this thing develop and grow. Thank you so much, Nick. We are grateful for you, for this podcast, but just for your message and for how you're encouraging people to get engaged. I think the world is going to be a better place as all these folks start making their voice heard and sharing the love and hope that's in their hearts. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Last question, and it's a doozy, and it's hypothetical, so keep that in mind. One day, you are going to die. Hopefully, it's many, 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 many years from now. And all of your friends, your family, a lot of the people that you guys have been able to see freed from human trafficking and sex slavery are there. Everybody's there. And I have, for some odd reason, been chosen to give your eulogy. In three to four sentences, what do you hope that I will say about you and your legacy on that day? 
Hmm. I would want you to say that I lived a life that pleased God, that I loved others deeply, and that I loved others recklessly, and that I brought joy to the world. That's a fantastic legacy. You're on your way there, and I hope that you continue to keep that legacy in mind so that whoever gives your eulogy will be able to say that wholeheartedly. (laughs) You're awesome, Nick. Thank you so much. This was so much fun, John. Thank you for joining me. We'll keep in touch, and I can't wait to get this out to Let's Give a Damn Family. Fantastic. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Thank you for joining John and me for our conversation. My goodness, what a guy. If you enjoyed this, please let him know on social media. I know he would love to hear from you. You can find John on Twitter and Instagram at JohnRichmond1. John Richmond, the number one. And you can find him on Facebook by searching his name. You know how to do that. You don't need me to tell you how. And you can learn more about him and the work that he's doing at johncottonrichmond.com. Keep up with me at Nick Lepar everywhere and with Let's Give a Damn at Let's Give a Damn everywhere. I would love to interact with you at either of those places. So please hit me up. That's it for this week. Keep giving so many dams. I can't wait to spend time with you next week. I love you all. Bye for now. <laughs>